Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Thank you very much to all of you for being here today at this session, indeed, on uh, Lost in Translation, on Machine Translation. Before we start, um, just a few words to introduce myself and my guest speakers today. I'm Helena Sanson. I'm a reader in Italian language, literature and culture at the University of Cambridge. And my research tries to bring together the history of women and the history of linguistic thought. And I'm also particularly interested in the history of translation. Um, between, well, let's say from the Renaissance to the beginning of the 20th century, and I'm currently working on a monograph on women translators in 18th century Italy. And you're going to see in a minute why that is relevant for how it connects to the uh, session today. In terms of my guest speakers in alphabetical order, on further right, uh, Professor Bill Byrne, uh, who is Professor of Information Engineering at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Clare College. Information engineering focuses on the generation, distribution, analysis, and use of information in engineering systems. And it sits at the border, really, between traditional computer science and engineering departments. Uh, Bill's interests are in speech and language technology, and he's worked on speech recognition, so that means going from speech to text, and speech synthesis, going from text to speech, as well as optical character and handwriting recognition. His academic research focus is in machine translation, and he is um, currently senior research scientist and director of the UK Research and Development Office of SDL Research, which is a global firm that provides language and content management services, and whose machine translation systems translate billions of documents monthly in hundreds of language pairs, mainly for use by professional translators. Our other guest speakers uh, today is Dr. Marcus Tomalin, and um, his main research interests focus upon different aspects of the analysis of natural language, and therefore the academic areas in which he's mostly closely involved include speech technology, theoretical linguistics, and the philosophy of language. He's been a member of the Machine Intelligence Laboratory at Cambridge since 1998, where he has undertaken research in speech recognition, speech synthesis, and machine translation. He's also one of the conveners of the Cambridge Conversations in Translation Research Group. And we have to say that he also has a very strong interest in literary translation in the long 18th century, and very recently, in 2016, with uh, Routledge, he published a monograph on the French language and British literature, 1756 to 1830. So you might be wondering now, well, <laughs> what about, um, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> uh, as someone who's working on women and translation in the 18th century in different periods, well, let me tell you a little bit about how this, the idea for this event came about. Um, so we could have really entitled this um, session Lost in Machine Translation. And to do that, to explain uh, where my idea came, I have to take you back very briefly to Italy's 18th century, uh, which is called the Secolo delle Donne, so the century of women, uh, beautifully represented by, for instance, the two paintings behind me, Rosalba Carriera, Young Woman with Laurel, and Pietro Longhi's The Geography Lesson. 
So this is getting more and more intriguing, I hope. Um, how did we get to machine translation? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on women translators in Italy in the 18th century. Um, hundreds of women, actually, who translated between 1690 and the beginning of the 19th century. They translated from a range of different languages, classical languages, Latin, Greek, from French, progressively in the century also English, and then German. They translated across different literary genres. They translated also um, scientific texts. And in order to see these primary sources, I have to travel, which is a pleasure also, uh, across Italy to see some very, very rare texts. Sometimes they're just like you know, unique copies, that one copy that has been preserved. And I was sitting last year um, in the archives of um, Bassano del Grappa, which is near Vicenza, so in the Veneto area. And I was working particularly um, on Francesca Roberti Franco. You can see her here on the slide. And Francesca Roberti Franco is one of these women translators who is really showing how, uh, in the middle of all the different, if you want, um, um, really refined kind of entertainment and social life that she had, very busy one, she was very devoted to translation. She translated from Latin, from French, at some point also from English. And I was going through her correspondence. And you can see from this translation that she really sees, sorry, from this correspondence that she really sees translation for her as um, scholarship, as a way to be in contact with the men of letters at the time, to show her erudition, to show her studies. And in one of the letters, uh, which you can see here at the bottom of the slide, um, she's actually in this case writing to her brother Tiberio, and um, she asked him for two favors, and one of them is, um, can you make sure, please, brother uh, Tiberio, Mio, due commissioni, she says, can you make sure that you can get hold for me of a French dictionary in two volumes uh, that has just been published uh, by the printer Remondini, and uh, please send them to me by post. And you can see on the left-hand side the dictionary she was referring to, a dictionary in two volumes from French to Italian. And there I am, musing about the way that this woman was translating and the kind of tools that she could use, because that's one of the things that I'm trying to um, you know, point out in my research. Which kind of tools did they have available at the time to do their work, to translate? And I was thinking, what a difference with nowadays when, in fact, a professional translator <laughs> uh, can avail himself or herself of a tool such as the SDL Trado Studio for professional translators, indeed. But even if you're not a professional translator, you know, at the click of a finger, you have their Google Translate. Quite a different, different kind of uh, scenario. So we are indeed talking about machine translation. And Bill has told me very, very, very sternly that I should not mention the word artificial intelligence because we are not talking about artificial intelligence. You might want to ask him later on why he does not want to hear about AI, artificial intelligence. I'll leave that to him. Um, so we're talking about machine translation, by which we mean a subfield of speech technology that investigates the use of software to translate text or speech from a source language to a target language. And you see, one of the advantages of being in an environment such as um, a collegiate environment such as Cambridge is that, in fact, you sit sometimes at lunch with next to colleagues who are working in many different kind of disciplines. And we happen to have lunch together. And I got really, really interested in trying to understand how machine translation works. I wanted to know more. I just realized that, yes, I'm using Google Translate, but do I really know how it works? So I was myself a little bit lost in machine translation. And so in order not to be lost in machine translation, I started to ask him questions. Um, what about the development of machine translation? What about the scope? How does it actually work? 
which are the progress and which are the problems that machine translation is still facing? What are the ethical implications? What is next? Lots of questions, and I was thinking, well, wouldn't it be nice to share the curiosity that I have with similarly-minded similarly people who might be interested in translation, in language, in history, and who might just feel like me, a little bit lost in translation? So here we are. So you can see the connection between uh, you know, uh, studying women in the 18th century and my guest speakers um, today. So in order to do that, um, we're going to have a brief journey uh, through also the history of machine translation, but very briefly, starting uh, just a mention of this object which you can see behind me, which is the cerveau mécanique uh, by the Frenchman um, Georges Artouni, who in the 1930s uh, had a patent for this machine in 1933 and then presented it in 1937 at the World Exhibition. This is in fact um, some sort of mechanical translator in the form of a typewriter. And so we're going to see now, and I'm going to ask Marcus to be our guide uh, in order not to be uh, lost in translation or lost in machine translation anymore, to tell us a little bit more about how we got from the servo mechanique to Google Translate. Marcus. So there are various um, phases, really, in the development of machine translation. And the next two slides just really give you a very high-level overview of that. You've already heard a little bit about um, how this was approached in, in the period from the 1920s to the 1940s. These were very much mechanical approaches that really have their roots in, in the 19th century. Um, but the theoretical understanding of, of machine translation really takes a, a sort of step forward with um, pointer's not working, but Warren, um, Warren Weaver there, Memorandum on Translation, that was a very important um, publication from 1949 that outlined uh, a, a, a theoretical approach to machine translation that became more influential later. It was during the 50s and the 60s, in the post-war years, um, that the first computer-based approaches were developed. Um, you know, computers were starting to emerge as a, as a comparatively powerful tool, and people were interested in making use of them for this particular task. And that's really when the academic community became really interested in this as a problem, and um, conferences about machine translation started to be organized, um, and associations that were focused on machine translation were, were set up. As things reached the, the 1970s and the 1980s, it was still the case that um, linguists were closely involved, really, in the development of these systems. People recognized that there are different patterns in, say, English and French or German. Um, if you think about adjectives, you know, do adjectives pre-modify nouns? Do they post-modify nouns? Different languages approach this in different ways. And so it was believed that one needed rules that were handwritten by linguists that the computers could then implement and try to find sort of mappings between them. And really a significant development occurred in the late 80s, really, but, but, but really through the 90s, um, when a different kind of approach was adopted to the problem. Um, so statistical techniques began to be used. And this was a, an approach that was pioneered, really, by IBM. Um, and it, it effectively um, um, meant that handwritten rules, handcrafted rules, weren't so essential. 
um, machine translation systems that use statistical techniques just learn patterns. They don't need to have those patterns fed into them at the very start. Um, so it, it was a sort of shift, really, in the way the problem was approached. And as computers became more powerful um, during the 1990s, it became easier, really, to perform large numbers of comp computations really very quickly. Then from really um, the year 2000 to the present, um, this is really the age in, in which machine translation has very much entered the public domain, rather than being something that only takes place in, in sort of remote academic corners. Um, I mean, most of you today are, are, I'm sure, you know, here with phones of various kinds that can perform machine translation on the spot, whether through, you know, Google Translate or any, any one of a number of other systems. Um, so there was a development through the early part of, of this century and something like Google Translate was first introduced in 2006. And really in the past five to six years, I'd say, there's been a, a sort of leap forward really with these technologies, with the, I guess, introduction of, but it's really a return to um, a particular type of mathematical model um, called neural networks, and particularly recurrent neural networks. These were techniques that had been developed in the 80s and, and were explored, but when the, com the computer power wasn't really sufficient to implement them effectively. Um, so they, they've been sort of rediscovered and reworked in, in new ways, and that's really um, caused a, a huge advance in, in the way machine translation is handled. And as I say, that's only about the last you know, five to six years. And you can see the last point here, you know, Google Translate changed to a neural system in 2016. So, you know, that's relatively recent, but in, in, in the terms of these technologies, that's actually quite a long time ago. That's <laughs> not exactly prehistory, but um, getting close to it. <laughs> um, I just want to say a few things about the scope of machine translation. So, it's very difficult to count languages. Quite what, what, what counts as a language and what counts as a dialect is a moot point. But averaging a little bit, there, there are probably about 6,900 languages in the world. So how many of these can modern machine translation systems deal with? Well, this slide just gives you a few of the numbers. So something like Babelfish, which you may have encountered, um, can cope with 15 languages. Then SDL, which is, which is a very um, you know, well-known um, system copes with 45 currently. And then Google Translate, which again is, is an extremely prominent one, copes with 103, and that includes Esperanto, in case you're interested. Um, there's a little asterisk here that <laughs> just points out that we have to be careful what we mean by translation. Um, for some of the languages that Google Translate deals with, it doesn't actually um, translate directly from um, the source language to the target language. It uses a technique called pivoting. So for instance, if it's trying to translate something, a sentence in Icelandic into a sentence in French, it doesn't really have enough training data to enable it to go directly from Icelandic to French. So it will translate um, Icelandic to English and English to French, and you won't see the English bit. You'll just get the French output. So whether that counts as a direct translation or not, again, that's something that can be um, considered. But as I say, Google Translate copes with about 103 languages. So if you think about all the languages in the world, the part that Google Translate copes with is the green bit. It's quite a, a small slice of the pie, if you're thinking of it you know, as a pie chart. But then if we look at this another way, you might say it doesn't really matter because 
um, about two-thirds of um, all the people in the world speak one of these languages as one of their native languages. Obviously, there are, there are many speakers who are bilingual or, or, or trilingual. But basically, if you have a good machine translation system that copes with these 12 languages, that gives you direct access, as it were, to two-thirds two, um, of, the, of the world population. Um, which, of course, raises interesting issues about how machine translation should cope with minority languages, and that's something perhaps we can talk about a bit more um, later today. I'm just going to give you a very, very brief overview and a largely non-mathematical overview of neural machine translation, which, as I say, over the past sort of five or six years has become the sort of dominant way of approaching this. Given what I said earlier, you won't be surprised to, to know that it's primarily based on probabilities. Okay? And so if we're translating from a source sentence into a target sentence, what we're really trying to work out is, given a token sequence in the target language, what's the probability of that given a corresponding token sequence in the source language? Okay? So these are conditional probabilities. And these mathematical models are called recurrent neural networks. And basically, they just learn patterns between um, sequences of data. So they have um, input sequences, and, and they, they've learned a way to map that input sequence onto an output sequence. That's all they're doing. Okay? And these models are trained on millions of sentence pairs. And because here we're dealing with translation, as you might expect, and we've got two languages in all the training data, so we'll have millions of sentences, say, in English, and then a corresponding set of sentences in French. And we want the mathematical models to learn how to map from, say, English to French, or from French to English. Okay? And one thing that people often don't know about how these systems work is that they actually have nothing to do with language. They have nothing to do with words. The first thing they do is to map all the words into numbers because it's much easier computationally to do things to numbers that you can't, you can't do with words. So that's, that's what this, this um, penultimate line really is about. So you might have a, a sentence in English, he is tall, but the first thing that happens is that that's number mapped, so it just becomes a sequence of numbers. And then you might have, as, as part of that, that bi-text, that, that, that um, sentence pair, il est grand in the French, and that's just mapped to numbers. And from that point on, the system just processes these numbers in various ways. Again, I'm not going to talk about this in detail, but there are normally two stages in these systems. There's something called an encoder and something called a decoder. The encoder takes the input sequence and um, modifies it in various ways using matrices and vectors um, to perform various transformations of it. And it results in something called a summary vector, which is really just a vector that just contains a whole load of numbers. And then that vector is used in order to generate the output, and that's what the decoder does. It takes the summary vector and uses that as one of the things that it, that it, that it can um, make use of when it's trying to determine what's the most, what's the most likely sequence of tokens that, that, it, that should be output. Okay? And that's effectively, at a very high level, how this works. In case it's helpful, you can view it a little bit like this. <laughs> so. This is, this is an example of this in action. You can see that there are, there are various layers. These are usually called hidden layers. So you have um, a source sequence. In this case, I'm a student. 
And so that, that's encoded. That's what's going on in the blue area. And then as soon as you, you sort of reach a symbol that says, OK, now you have to switch from encoding to decoding, it, it shifts to the sort of red and pink part of this, and it starts to produce output. So the first thing it outputs is je. Um, and then as soon as it's output that, that also becomes input for the next step. So it knows that it, it's decided that the most likely first word is je. And given that, that has an impact on the next decision that's made. And so here it outputs je suis. And then that all goes in again. So it's constantly drawing upon what it's already produced while it's making decisions about what to produce next, if that makes sense. So that, at a very high level, is, is how these, these neural machine translation systems work. So that one's quite small. But what I want to emphasize on this slide is um, how do we assess the quality of the output? Um, there may be some professional translators in the audience. I don't know. But even if you're not a professional translator, I think most people are well aware of the fact that given almost any sentence in, in a source language, it can be translated into the target language in a range of different ways. And so if we're trying to assess the, the, the quality, if you like, of the output that these machine translation systems produce, we need to find a way of, of sort of, I suppose, quantifying the quality. So here we've got um, two reference sentences at the top. The reference sentences are both produced by human beings. So these are human beings who have taken a, an original sentence, let's assume the original was in French, and they've both translated it slightly differently, but perhaps equally well. So just in case you can't read it, the first reference sentence here is, the translator will finish translating the books by the end of the year. Okay? The second reference translation, again, produced by a human being, is the books will be translated by the translator before the end of the year. Slightly different, but broadly the same. They capture the sense, presumably, of the original. And then we have our system output, the sentence that our um, machine translation system has produced. And this isn't a real example. This is a made-up example. <laughs> but let's assume that the output is, by the end of the year, the poorly paid drudge may have started translating the books. Right? Now, we want to determine the quality of that output. There are various ways of doing this, but the most common one is called BLE or BLUE. Um, it stands for Bilingual Evaluation Understudy. And th this just gives you a gist of how it works. So um, basically, you can, you can determine all the single words that occur in your machine output that also occur in the reference. And you can count those. So here we've got 10 of the 18 possibilities. Um, you know, so there are 18 words that occur uniquely in the, in the two reference sentences. 10 of them occur in the machine output. So it's 10 over 18, which is 0.55. And we can do the same, but rather than just single unique words, we can look at sequences of two words. So things like translating the, or the books, or by the. Okay? So they're called two grams. And again, we can just count and then divide. So out of the possible 19, the machine outputs eight of them. So that's 0.42. And we can do this for three grams, sequences of three words, or four grams, sequences of four words. And then we can add these little you know, 0 0.5, 0 0.2. We can add those together for the one grams, the two grams, the three grams, the four grams. And then we can just basically average them. And that gives us the blue score. Is that a good way of doing this? Well, let's have a look. So we've got our two references. The translator will finish translating the books by the end of the year. 
The books will be translated by the translator before the end of the year. And now we've got two different machine outputs. Okay, the first one we've seen before, by the end of the year, the poorly paid drudge may have started translating the books. And then we've got another machine translation output. The end of the year will finish translating the translator the books by, which I think to most native speakers of English is really quite garbled. <laughs> the thing is, the second one gets a better blue score. So in blue, a higher value is better than a lower value. So using blue here, the first one, which, you know, let's say distorts the meaning a little bit, but which is fluent English, gets a lower score than the one that just sounds like a kind of garbled bit of sort of non-language. And this is important because the development of machine translation systems is driven by these blue scores. It's also possible, of course, to get human beings to look at the machine output and assess it. But that takes a lot longer. It takes human beings a lot longer to sort of read a, a set of maybe you know, two or 300 sentences. The blue score can be generated in just a few seconds. So it makes it easier and quicker to develop these systems. But it's only useful if the blue score-based evaluation is a meaningful and helpful one. What I've said there when describing how neural machine translation works should have emphasized how these systems focus on things at the sentence level. Okay. Almost all current systems are primarily focused on a sentence. They'll translate a sentence, they'll translate another sentence, and so on. That creates problems. Um, modern machine translation systems are often accused of being sexist. What do people mean? They mean this. So again, just in case you can't see, this is just using Google Translate. You can do this on your phones if you want while, while, you, while you're listening. Um, so you put into Google Translate in English, I have a sister. She is a doctor. Right? Pretty straightforward, pretty basic English. Then you translate it into Turkish, which happens to be a language that has neuter pronouns. So it's possible to use pronouns that are neither you know, masculine nor feminine. And it copes with that. You take the Turkish, and you just cut and paste it back into Google Translate, translate it back into English. And then you get, I have a sister. He is a doctor. That's because when it's translating from the <coughs> Turkish into the English, it just deals with one sentence, deals with the next sentence. It's not thinking about the relationship between the sentences. And it gives this, this, um, this kind of output, which, of course, from a human perspective, seems problematical. So that's one thing that, that um, again, we can maybe talk about a little bit more. And finally, just to end with, um, I wanted to say a little bit about literature. I'm sure many of you here today are interested in literature. And um, of course, many of the most um, powerful and effective translations produced by human beings are translations of literature, whether it's poetry, whether it's novels, whether it's plays. That's something that these systems struggle with. And this is just meant to give you a, 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 an insight, really, as to why they struggle with it. So here you've got the first three lines of a very beautiful poem by uh, Matthias Claudius, Abendlied, or sort of evening song. Um, and so the German, here we're going from German into English, Diamondis aufgegangen, die golden Sternlein prangen, am Himmel hell und klar. So even if you don't know German, you, you can see that there are rhyming words here, aufgegangen, prangen, it rhymes. And there's things like alliteration, Himmel, Hell. Right? When a neural machine translation system number maps that, 
the numbers don't say anything about which words rhyme, which words start with the same consonant. It's just numbers. So it processes those numbers. It outputs a load of other numbers. And then you get the English. And this is indeed the Google translation, um, translation of the German. The moon has risen. The golden stars were prancing, I mean, maybe, uh, <laughs> in the sky bright and clear. So you could argue that the core meaning has been retained in some way. But you could argue that all the poetry has indeed been lost in translation. But and building a system that, that keeps hold of that poetry, if you like, is a much more complicated problem than just building one that will keep the, the core meaning. Nonetheless, undaunted by this, some people have started to look at um, ways in which machines can be used to translate literature. And Marzia Grillo has um, specifically used modern uh, machine translations to translate poetry. So she used um, Google Translate and three other systems that she doesn't actually mention in a book by name, so I'm not sure which one she actually used. But she converted, if that's the right word, um, 22 poems by Emily Dickinson um, into Italian um, automatically. And then she selected, if you like, the best parts from those four different machine-generated translations. <coughs> And this is what she got as output. This is just little highlights. Um, I'm not going to go through all of this, because I know I'm taking a bit longer than, than I should. Um, but th there are just a few things that are, that are slightly wrong here, and, and um, it's, it's probably just worth pointing them out. So this, this Italian word, um, spegnimento, um, basically means to switch off. This is the kind of thing you do to a, to a light switch or something like that. Um, so it's not really sleep. In the, I mean, it might be the sleep in, in the, in, you know, when you put the computer to sleep. It's more that, it's more that kind of sense. So it gives you a very different um, connotation in the, in the um, Italian. And then the translation of a line in the Dickinson in the second um, block there, like <laughs> one with the banner gay, one in the red array. Um, well, gay, obviously, um, is a word that's acquired different connotations since the 19th century. And perhaps something like felice would be more appropriate here. Um, and array, obviously, now has a very computational connotation. Um, you know, arrays of numbers are things that computers manipulate. Um, and so matrice is, is closer to that. Um, but as far as uh, Marzia Grillo is concerned, this is all fine. Um, this just means you take poetry on the English side, you use machine translations, and it generates an even weirder and more wonderful <laughs> form of poetry on the other side. So she sees it as a, as a mechanism for creativity. Um, I'm sure some of you may disagree. Uh, <laughs> but um, again, that's something we can maybe, maybe talk about. So just to summarize briefly what I've said there, machine translation is becoming in increasingly pervasive. As I say, whether you know it or not, most of you are carrying it about in your pockets right now. Um, it uses these sophisticated mathematical models. It tends to work fairly well for relatively simple sentences in um, widely spoken languages. But the sorts of things that I've mentioned, things like more complex sentences, minority languages, um, social biases and things like that, and particularly poetry, it struggles with. Um, so, you know, if this is human translation, um, the kind of thing that you know women in the 18th century were doing, this is roughly where machine translation has 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 reached. So, it may get there eventually, but my advice would be don't hold your breath. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We thought we were going to give you also just some um, further reading. So we have um, three 
references. The top one you might know by David Bellows is that of Fish in Your Ear, which we all agreed is an excellent text to read if you want to know more about translation and also to understand more about uh, machine translation. And then two other texts, maybe Bill can tell us a little bit more about uh, the ones <coughs> by Peter Brown. And well, uh, just a little, is this on? Yeah. So um, there were two papers that came, uh, uh, Helena and Marcus mentioned the influence of the research group at IBM that are, uh, popularized the use of statistics, uh, pioneered the use of statistics for translation. And at the time that they pushed their work, there was a great deal of resistance because people previously working on the problems approached it from a linguistics point of view, which is very much, uh, as Marcus described it, things should be written down in a form that could be understood by a, uh, by a person who is doing the translation or looking at the output and not in the form of, of the sort of numerical representations. And so these papers contain some beautiful mathematics and some but presented in a way uh, uh, that people who hadn't seen it before could actually read them and, and sort of follow the, the reasoning. So this is not how it's done currently, um, uh, but the, the, uh, this was a, a nice introduction to the idea. So you get a bit of history by looking at it, but also if you don't come from a sort of statistical communications or information theory background, it's a bit more approachable, although there is a sort of A-level calculus, I guess, in there. Uh, <laughs> Can I ask you, you just, you just mentioned the question of um, this um, shift, if you want, towards the statistical modeling approach being controversial. And I understand that uh, in the 90s you were a postdoc at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more why it was controversial and which were you know, the elements that were controversial as such? Well, I, I, I think the idea that you could talk about translation as an encoding and decoding problem using statistical models was very alien to people who thought about it in terms of uh, um, uh, what people who at the time were called computational linguists. So they would build grammars that would describe a language and you have a grammar for describing one language and a grammar for describing a second language and translation is the process of converting from one grammar to another yeah. um, and abandoning all that in favor of uh, very large-scale um, statistical models w was difficult. Uh, it was easy for me to see because my background was in information and, and signal processing and communication. So when I read these papers, I thought, oh, it's perfectly natural. Uh, <laughs> but um, there was a great deal of resistance. And in fact, I encountered it myself when I attempted to publish my own research. In which would, sense? Well, I would write it as an engineer. You know, here is our problem. You state the problem. You know, this is uh, how we will approach it. Yeah. This is how uh, we measure performance. And this is what we find. And the first review I got when I moved into this area was like, well, the old man in the sea, you know, when I read a book, it's, it's, it's about, on the one hand, it's about fishing, but it's not really about fishing. And I, and I was trying to explain to the poor graduate student who is from China, you know, yeah. what the reviewer was trying to tell us here. It's changed. It's translated, since. in a sense, into... Yeah. <laughs> but so the field uh, has, has this, the, these battles have been uh, fought and won, in a sense. Um, so it's now um, possibly too much gone to uh, numerical optimization for the reasons that Marcus pointed out. There are weaknesses in those approaches as well. Um, can I ask you something? You mentioned um, this question of encoding and decoding. And I think that's one element that I, I find personally really fascinating. And it's this idea that there is a moment in between 
these yeah. two languages, like we saw earlier on, you know, these numbers. And uh, is there some sort of interlingua? Or is there a hope for some sort of interlingua in the future? There's something, this, this language in between the two, this moment when the translation takes place. Yeah. Marcus. Yeah, I mean, so this is, um, just to bring the slide back up, I guess. Um, this, in, in some ways, is the sort of most mysterious mm. part of yeah. the whole machine trans. This summary vector. So you have the encoding stage, the decoding stage. Um, I think if you were to ask anyone who, who works in this area, you know, at a high level, um, what what exactly is going on at this point? Um, what exactly happens in this summary vector representation? Even people who, who understand the mathematical models exhaustively would probably have to say, "I'm not sure." <laughs> Um, they'd have to say, I understand the mathematical framework. I understand that absolutely exhaustively. All I can say about that is, whatever it does, it works quite well. Um, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except when it doesn't, and then I can't tell you why. That's right. They are developing an internal representation of, uh, of language. It's possible to train these systems to be, these are in a sense sort of bilingual. Maybe it goes between English and French, sort of in one direction. But it's also possible to train a single system that will go from a bunch of different languages into a single common language. Mm. And how it does this, I have no idea. <laughs> so, yeah. uh. And we're talking with experts. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So um, this brings us back also to the question you said uh, it works quite well. So I was thinking about the question of the evaluation. And as you probably know, if you've used Google Translate, there's an icon uh, which allows users to actually improve the translation. So there is this element that, in a sense, we can contribute also in a way to the progress of machine translation directly. So I wanted to know a little bit more about this, because especially in the, in the era of, of the internet, um, it's quite a change. It's the fact that no, it, it's not only professional translators, but users who can actually contribute to evaluating whether the system is working or not and to make it better. Could either of you say something more about this point? Yeah. Um, so there, there are multiple ways in which, um, in addition to the, to the blue score, that people look at uh, whether or not a system is successful. So for instance, if, uh, if Google deploys uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say if if a company deploys a translation. <laughs> well, no, because I, do, I don't know what they do. But um, <laughs> if a company deploys a translation system and someone say uh, uses it to translate a website, uh, a shopping page, and then goes and buys something, you can say, well, probably that was th that translation was mm. good enough mm. that a yeah. person uh, uh, was able to buy something. So that's a signal that it's working well. Um, there's a, there'll be a little button on the uh, sort of a list of stars that you can click on on whether it was good or not. Talking about stars. Stars, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you can say this is a one-star translation, a four-star yeah. translation. That tends to be very unreliable because you don't know why a person picked three stars as opposed to four stars. They, yeah. they may have been annoyed by one thing. They may have liked it. Mm -hmm. um, so most of the signal that comes back via feedback is, is actually not very useful. Um, one of the reasons why I like working with um, the company that I, that I work with, SDL, is that we actually work with professional translators. Right. And they care enormously yeah. about yeah. the quality of, of what's presented to them. It's, yeah. their it's their job. Yeah. And if we give them bad <coughs> material, it slows them down, and, mm. and then it hurts their productivity, and then they don't use what we develop. Mm. So I, I prefer to, to work in, in that mm. environment rather than what they call general domain uh, yeah. open translation. Yeah. And that 
also makes me think about something else because now you're talking about a company, the company you're working with, Google Translate, I mentioned it. Um, so there is another element that is perhaps um, we talk less about it, but it's very important, and it's a question of the business model that is behind machine translation. Could you both tell us more about this? What's the, if you want, the economic model behind it? I think that there are various economic models, and it depends which part of the, the, the I suppose, the sort of ecosystem um, around machine translation you're involved with. So. Um, obviously, you know we're we're, we're both um, based in an academic environment, mm -hmm. partly, and um, there are various funding streams that that yeah. enable academic research to take place. And so, um, when when we're proposing, you know, projects and and and, and things like that, you know, and seeking funding, um, we have to sort of make sure that those projects are sufficiently enticing to whoever it is who who's providing the funding and who that person is can vary. It could be um, the US Defense Department, yeah. um, or it could be one of the funding bodies within the UK, and you might pitch it very differently yeah. depending upon which of those bodies you're, you're dealing with. Um, but then I guess there's also the, 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 the sort of commercial market for this. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned it in your slide with the bubbles. I mean, the, the data uh, follows the money. In a sense, I mean, people tend to, to talk to each other because they're, they're uh, not only, but because there's commercial transactions. So if there's a language pair where there's a lot of data available, it's because there's a lot of communication. So possibly there'll be markets, and so it makes sense to develop a, uh, a translation system for those language pairs. When you have two language pairs where there's very little interaction between them, it's difficult to get data, and there's probably very little economic activity as well. So they, they tend to go together. And, um, and of course, the, the rich get richer, um, and people develop uh, technology for, for, for lucrative markets. Mm. Are there any translators in the audience? Oh, hi. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> So the other, the other challenge in this field in particular is, um, is the margin is low. So our aim is to, uh, is to improve the productivity of translators and hopefully without aggravating them too much in the process. Um, but translators are, are not paid as well, for instance, as uh, anesthesiologists. So when IBM developed the first speech recognition systems, they targeted anesthesiologists because if you save an hour of an anesthesiologist's time, you saved a lot of money. I'm not so sure that it scales quite so much with translators. So one of our big challenges is developing all of this good technology, which requires very expensive computers and a lot of PhDs to build it, and deliver it in such a way that, in a sense, it can still be affordable for the translation market. Yeah. And um, that's another sort of fun challenge as mm -hmm. well. And on that, um, I was just thinking, you know, you mentioned earlier the question of the language pairs. And we mentioned earlier in the session the question of the um, languages that are um, less represented, minority languages, as they're called sometimes. So uh, that's also another issue that, that brings other questions in. I mean, in a sense, one can think that this kind of uh, technology could also perhaps be used to preserve even, I don't know, endangered languages? Or can you tell us a little bit more, Marcus, about a, the question of the minority languages and what that implies, and possibly also the question of endangered languages, which kind of use this, this technology could have in that respect. Yeah, I mean, th there's, a, there's a great deal of um, 
interest in um, endangered languages. And um, it's quite a, a, a fraught area, partly because a lot of the academics who are you know, based in UK, America, and continental Europe, um, their, their mission is to preserve these languages. Um, and you can see parallels between um, that and, and the, the, the sort of individuals who are interested in, in preserving species. You know, if we hear that a particular species has gone extinct, that's, that's seen as mm. being a dreadful thing. And by analogy, if a language goes extinct, that's a dreadful thing. Um, and these sorts of technologies are sometimes seen as ways of preserving those languages. I mean, if, if there was a language that went extinct, but we had sufficient data so that we could build some sort of machine translation system based on it, then you could go in and out of that language, even though there are no native speakers anymore. Um, the sorts of complexities that come along with that are things that, that tend not to get quite so much coverage and attention. So some work that I did myself a few years ago on a, on a highly endangered language called Haida that's, that's spoken on the, the west coast of Canada, um, Haida Gwaii and, and, and a little bit up into Alaska. Um, <laughs> these days there's about 50 surviving native speakers, so that, that's, that's you know, uh, almost as endangered as it gets before, yeah. <laughs> before it becomes extinct, and most of them are over the age of about 60. And yet their own attitude towards their own languages is that they don't want it to be preserved. Um, they see that as being a tremendously artificial thing. Their whole philosophy of life is, is on, um, you know, to, to do with things sort of coming into being, being present for a time and then, and then disappearing. Traditionally, they, they built their houses out of perishable materials um, and they view their language in the same way. And they think that this Western obsession with preserving things is tremendously childish. Um, and so it raises problems for, for someone, if you're a linguist or if you're someone interested in speech technology, um, you know, what right have you to preserve a language against the will of the, the people who speak it as a first language? It's one of these, um, you know, ethical dilemmas. Um, so it's one thing to have the technology that potentially could help if you view it in that way, but it's quite another thing to make sure that that's, that's done in accordance with the wishes of the, the um, endangered communities um, who speak those languages. Yeah, and that brings us to my, my last question before we open up uh, the question to the floor, the question of uh, the ethical dilemma and ethical implications, because as you know, today is the 25th of May, and it is the day <laughs> when the GDPR, <laughs> the European Union General Data Protection Regulation, comes into force, which means that... Uh, all, all the spam mail vanishes. Uh, yeah, you, <laughs> must, um, you might have received quite a lot of that. Um, um, so it comes into force. We are supposed to have a little bit more of a protection of our um, privacy and of our data, and also keeping in mind the recent events from that point of view. I wanted to know a little bit more about um, the question, wh which kind of dangers there are, if there are any dangers in terms of machine translation, for instance, in perhaps from the point of view of constant surveillance, is that the case? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now we know. <laughs> so, um, I mean, this partly goes to, you know, why people worry about artificial intelligence. and Which uh, we're not supposed to mention, so not, he did. So, uh, <laughs> but it's not, I mean, you, these translation systems work in the way that, that Marcus described them, and they're not intelligent, and yet they can, they can monitor um, uh, speech and language across, mm. uh, across <laughs> linguistic boundaries in a way that um, if they're not correctly protected, or people's rights aren't protectly, correctly protected, it can be terribly intrusive. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, there's huge problems, and they're with us now, even though general artificial intelligence is not. And they've been with us for a while, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. so. 
Well, I have lots of questions, as you can imagine, but I'm going to let you ask the questions. And one of you, please ask him about artificial <laughs> intelligence, okay? <laughs> Not let him get away with it that easily. So let me just put, um, I had a first question down there. Yeah, thank you very much for the microphone, yes. Thank you. Hello. Uh, hello, thanks very much, this is very interesting. Um, there, you must come across things that are untranslatable because I imagine that within that is the cultural differences between languages makes it really interesting. So, I mean, can you, are there, have you got any examples? No. <laughs> <laughs> Mark. I mean, there, there, are, there are, you know, many, many examples, and, and this can work at, in, at all sorts of levels. So at the lexical level, there are particular words in particular languages that have such complex sets of connotations that, that it, it's impossible to find a corresponding word in the target language that has the same um, set of, of connotations. I mean, to pick an obvious example, something like ennui in French, you know, how do you translate that into English? I mean, this is just an ongoing nightmare for translators. Is it boredom? Well, that's not it, you know, and you, you run through all the options. But I think in those sort of situations, as that example demonstrates, humans struggle with that. Um, you know what these what these systems tend to do is just go for um, the equivalent word that it's seen often enough in all its training data. Mm -hmm. So if it's been trained on lots of data where people said, "Oh, ennui," that just means boredom. <laughs> It'll say boredom um, because that's that's the sort of you know very unsatisfactory conclusion that the human translators have, have, have reached. So it's only you know it, its upper limit is that it can be as good as as you know human translators. <laughs> because it's trained on data that's been produced by them. And the question here? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a translator, but I'm very conscious that we're, we're standing here in a bilingual nation where roughly 20% of the population mm. speaks Welsh. Mm. Uh, Welsh is a minority language. I, I was involved in the, in the Welsh Assembly getting involved in using machine translation, using Microsoft mm. translators, it happens, to translate the record of proceedings. We're talking yeah. millions of words uh, you know, every few years as part of that, and they were getting about a 20% um, saving in terms of the productivity, working with professional translators, taking the, the, the text and then working to do something which is intelligible. But my main concern is that as you go around Wales, you see lots of signs in which people have used Google Translate <laughs> to translate <laughs> yeah. into Welsh, and most, a lot of the time the Welsh is inaccurate. And with a minority language like Welsh, you know, mm. using these inaccurate um, phrases on science from Welsh, you're actually undermining the Welsh language by people relying on Google Translate yeah. without getting professional translators to, to yeah. then overview it and, and review it and actually interpret it correctly. Yeah. So my concern is, isn't machine translation going to undermine languages in that way unless you find a way of actually tackling this particular problem? <laughs> yeah. My view is that translators should be involved. Um, I, uh, but um, I don't know how to put that cat back in the bag. Um, people use, people are willing to tolerate weak translations, mm. um, but um, I would say that if, some, if a sign gets posted in public, someone should look at the output before they send it to the printer. I think the key word for me here is collaboration. So, so a question that not surprisingly, you know, I'm often asked is, will machine translation one day replace human translation? Yeah. Um, it's a false dichotomy. 
Um, the way professional translators, many of them, work today is that they make use of, of computer-based methods. So, so computer-assisted translation is, is what, what many professional translators use. And these are systems that learn, um, again, patterns that perhaps that particular translator has used in the past. So when you have to translate the same four words, it'll suggest what you've used the past six times. You've translated the same words. But if the translator doesn't want to use it, then he or she is free to alter it. So as I see it, it's a collaboration. And the machine translation part may take you sort of 70% of the way there more rapidly than was the case 100 years ago. But that final 30%, you, you're, you're living dangerously if you don't get a human being who's got some knowledge of both languages, mm. at least to read it through and say, yeah, it looks right to me. I can give you a dangerous result of that, which uh, doesn't necessarily involve only, if you want, um, uh, minority languages, but actually involves Italian. So some years ago, um, they translated page, I think it was a web page of the Ministry of Education, if I remember correctly. We're talking more than 15 years ago. And um, you can see there that it, it would have been essential to have a collaboration between a machine and a human translator because, in fact, it clearly, they had a machine translating the Italian into English. And the machine translated everything. So there was also a name of, um, of a journalist. His name is Osvaldo Dal Noce. And the machine <laughs> translated it Oswald of the Walnut. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so collaboration is essential. And one thing that I have learned by speaking with Bill, by speaking with Marcus, is that our fear that you know, the machines would take over, um, is we're not there. I mean, um, really, a human translator is very much needed, is essential, and it's so refined that the machine cannot, for instance, detect these sort of things. There's another question, of course, about the fact that it should have been checked, but <laughs> you know, that's uh, Italy sometimes, I have to say. Yes, we had a gentleman here. Isn't it part of the problem that language itself isn't fixed and immutable? The languages themselves are developing and changing. So, for example, um, my wife speaks Ladino, which is uh, an oh. old form of Spanish. Yeah. Um, and when she was pregnant, I went to my friend who was Spanish, and I said, hey, name is Priniada. And he said to me, unless you want her to hit you, you'll say she's in Barathana. The words have changed. In, yeah. our, own, in our own time, the, the word wicked yeah. has gone from being, meaning something bad to something good. Mm. And how do we cope with that in machine learning? Mm. That... Um, so these, 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 these systems uh, monitor what goes on, and so they actually sort of track people's uh, usage like that fairly straightforwardly. Um, actually, that um, word sense tends to change fairly in, in, in a way that's not difficult to, to track because they simply observe what people are doing. Um, As you were saying, the question is also the more data you feed into the machine, the more yeah. probabilities you have also, right? So it's a question also which kind of training data you're feeding the machine, am I right? That's so in right, this yeah. Sense so if you, um, for instance, if you were uh, talking in a medical domain, you would want to have a lot of data of people describing their conditions, and it should be recent, and it sh you would, you know, hopefully I even ideally get uh, data from different types of complaints. Um, and, then, and then it tends to work quite well, and it wouldn't make mistakes like that unless a person had made the mistakes. We have um Can you, am I audible? Yeah, uh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my question is related to the Welsh language. Uh, I work at the university and we use the software um, for plagiarism to turn it in. <laughs> and uh, my students are quite sharp, I suppose most bilingual people are. But they, they will write an essay and they have 
uh, well, I forget what I say, but they, you could kind of guess that they've plagiarised a chapter from an English language book and put it into Welsh and think they can get away with it. Um, so I'm just wondering, are, are you working, you've talked about translation and there's lots of uh, you know, industry and, and, and things you can use it for. Are you working with uh, uh, sort of the education sector to look at plagiarism software uh, for, for those so, sort of things? I'm not. No, I think we're not personally, but, but these technologies are used in that way. I mean, plagiarism, particularly in an academic environment, is, is becoming an increasing concern. I mean, you know, you only have to go back sort of 15, 20 years. You couldn't really just cut and paste, and you certainly couldn't automatically translate something. So the temptation to plagiarize has never been greater, and therefore the scrutiny and vigilance um, needs to be greater correspondingly, and these are technologies that can help. I mean, and, and, and these bilingual environments where there's the capacity to pinch something from another language <laughs> and translate it and hope that that, you know, um, um, avoids detection. Uh, you know, th these, are, these are very real problems, and so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, it's, it's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> People are dishonest all around the world, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> you know. And actually, paradoxically, we can say that the students are actually contributing to make these uh, system, you know, That's become right. better and That's better. Right. So right. it's a question of collaboration. So yeah. there is a positive yeah. element if we want to see it there. <laughs> I'm sure. There's a lady over there who has... Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks. You mentioned the social bias aspect of uh, uh, machine learning and language. And can it actually play a role in helping to identify those patterns to make them more visible and also look at how language is, is playing a role in, in, in creating biases, whether that's in international companies' performance reviews and the language that's being used or particular word associations? Absolutely. I mean, when I'm... when. People say to me, you know, isn't it true that machine translation is um, sexist, for instance, use that example. My, my, my usual response is, um, it isn't sexist. Society maybe is sexist, and it's trained on data that comes from society. So it simply reflects back to us um, the biases that, that perhaps we're not aware of. So in that sense, it can be very, a very useful thing. And I think it's a... It's a it's a complicated issue as to how that should be handled. So we've emphasized multiple times that training data is important and having a lot of training data is important. And if we therefore um, reduce the amount of training data in order to make it balanced, the systems will probably be worse in other ways. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a complicated conversation to have about that. But yeah, in, in short, it can be a very useful way um, for us to see the nature of our own biases, because these systems unthinkingly just present them to us in a very conspicuous manner. I'm, I'm sorry that we can't take any more questions because our time is basically running out. But uh, before I thank you, we have to ask Bill why we can't talk about <laughs> artificial <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> why can't we talk about artificial intelligence? Well, of course. Can you tell us more <laughs> about this, Bill? People can, but I, I sort of struggled to, to try to, to try to say why it, it bothers people and, and you know my colleagues as well. Um, and maybe one way to to describe it would be the difference, say, between a, a machine translation system and something like an ideal interpreter. So a translation system, you give it a French sentence and it returns back an English sentence, perhaps, hopefully, that's identical. But an interpreter will understand what it is you really want. Yeah. If you want to rent a car, you bring an interpreter, and, yeah. and there's a lot of talking beyond simply what you express. Yeah. And so the interpreter has intelligence. They're actually able to act on your behalf and 
provide for you what you want. Yeah. And um, I don't think that most of artificial technology at the moment is, is capable of doing that, whereas it can produce very good translations. So we try to focus on what we can do. We yeah. call it machine learning. The machines learn from text. They learn from data. They observe people's behavior and begin to mimic them. But that's different from general intelligence. Uh, now we know. Yeah. <laughs> Not supposed to use <laughs> AE. Um, can I thank uh, Marcus? Can I thank Bill? Can I thank all of you for coming today? And I do hope you're a little bit less lost in between translation <laughs> after the session. Thank you very much. <laughs>